Hello and welcome to Critical to Your Success. Thanks for joining me. I am your host, Rachel Park. I'm a critical care nurse, academic and researcher from Auckland, New Zealand. This is the podcast where I talk to critical care nurses, allied healthcare team members and academics about what has been critical to their success. I do hope you've been enjoying the episode so far. This is episode number eight, recorded in May 2019, and today I talk with Professor Carol Hodgson. Carol is the Deputy Director at the Australian and New Zealand Intensive Care Research Centre, Monash University, a Heart Foundation Fellow and an NHMRC Fellow. She leads international trials in mechanical ventilation and early mobilisation in the intensive care and specialises in long-term functional recovery following critical illness. She leads the Team Phase 3 trial in early mobilisation in ICU and the Anzac RC ECMO Partnership Grant, which includes the ECMO registry called Excel. She's a senior physiotherapist in intensive care at the Alfred Hospital, is passionate about multidisciplinary research to improve patient recovery, and has four children. In this episode, Carol and I talk about collaboration, inclusivity, and passion in research how important it is to focus on doing good work and doing everything to the best of your ability, the importance of mentors and support, and in particular about recovery after ECMO or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. You might have to bear with us a little as this episode was recorded at the Monash Centre in Prato, Italy, which is housed in an amazing 18th century palace. There was a bit of building work going on outside that day and plenty of people coming and going. So unfortunately, there's a little bit of background noise. It does add to the atmosphere though. So grab a cuppa, sit back and enjoy the interview with Carol Hodgson. Right, so today I'm with Carol Hodgson and we're fortunate enough to be in Prato in Italy where we're attending uh, a meeting of intensive care researchers from 14 different countries. So welcome Carol and thanks for finding the time to have a chat. (laughs) Thanks Rachel, thanks for having me. It's the most amazing building that we're in um, and has strong ties to and is owned by Monash University, isn't it? So, um, which you're based at now as Deputy Director of the ANZIC Research Centre. So do you want to tell us a little bit about where you've come from and how you moved into that role? Yeah, sure, I'd love to. So my background is physiotherapy. I trained uh, a long time ago now, (laughs) and I worked uh, in Heidelberg at the um, Austin Repat Hospital to begin with, and uh, the, one of my first rotations was intensive care mm. and I completely fell in love with the intensive care department and the team of people that work in ICU. So I can quite honestly say that it's a, a love that I've never lost. Mm. Um, I was incredibly passionate about it. Everybody knew it. I told everybody from the minute I started that rotation that that's where I wanted to work for the rest of you know my career. And I think that I've been pretty true to that, to be honest. Mm. I have um, happily and quickly was um, promoted into senior physiotherapy roles in ICU. So I worked at um, REPAT in the actual, the REPAT ICU before it was amalgamated with Austin REPAT. 
I did some work at the Austin ICU when I was on maternity leave. I worked for a period of time at St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne as the mm. senior ICU physio with John Santamaria. And John was actually one of my supervisors for my master's by research. Right. And then I moved to the Alfred Hospital and I worked at the Alfred Hospital until um, I had finished my master's by then and, and I had children and did a bit of a break interruption while I had four children and came back post-children to do my PhD. So I chose to come back part-time by research and just work mm. one day a week or two days a week clinical while I juggled um, my research. And at that stage, my youngest, the twins, were three. So I had, I think I had six, <laughs> six five and twin three-year-olds oh. and um, and I was doing a PhD and it just felt like that PhD was actually the me time, that you yeah. know, it was the time that I had to do what I, you know, get my head back into it and act like an adult again. And Funny how appealing things are after you've had children. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So I did a, um, a PhD in recruitment manoeuvres for um, acute respiratory distress syndrome and that PhD um, culminated in the FARLAP study mm. which has um, just been submitted for publication and is under revision. Uh, so hopefully we'll have a publication out for FARLAP very soon. But you know that, that PhD was very much the Cochrane Review, the safety study, the pilot study for all of the background work for mm. FARLAP before we got our big NHMRC uh, grant as a postdoc. So, at that point, I had done a master's by research and a PhD by research, mm. but it was all single centre studies. I really loved it. I loved for Farlap that I stepped a little bit out of a physio role, to be honest. Mm. I think recruitment manoeuvres aren't necessarily something that physiotherapists in Australia would normally do. Yeah. I was working with a great medical team. The Alfred is a fantastic hospital. I felt, you know, very much part of the ICU team there, um, and they were very supportive of me uh, leading that pilot study. Mm. With, um, you know, David Tuxen being a real champion for my work and and my PhD supervisor. So I think what happened was I got invited um, to come and present Farlap at the clinical trials group meeting mm, in Noosa. I remember. <laughs> and so that was my first Noosa. I was a PhD student and I was standing up in front of the ANZIC CTG and I suddenly realised I had a second love and that was this amazing trials group that was leading these multi-centre international mm. research trials and I had no idea that such a group existed. Yeah. I didn't know that mm. such research was being done in Australia. I didn't understand that there was a group of people who could be so collaborative and mm. inclusive and there came my next passion, which was <laughs> to be part of the trials group and to lead, you know, large international studies that would have an impact beyond just the centre where I was working. Mm. Uh, so uh, the year after I finished my PhD, I applied for a job at the research centre and I had made it very well known that I wanted a job at the research centre and that I was so excited to be, you know, coming mm. and trying to work in the trials group and learning everything I could about multi-centre research. Um, when when I put in my application, though, my children were still quite young, and I said to Jamie uh, that you've advertised the position, it's full-time, I'm, I'm, I'm not available to work full-time, but I really want to come and work for the RC. And he said, oh, well, I'm sorry, that's all we have, it's full-time. And I said to him, well, I'm going to put in my CV uh, anyway because I just want you to know what I've done and where I come from and perhaps something will come up that's part-time yeah. in the future. So even if I can't get this job, I'm just going to put in my CV so that you know who I am. And I think he got convinced to accept me for an interview even though they knew I couldn't accept a full-time position 
And I think then he got convinced to offer it to me half-time over two years rather than full-time over one year. And so somehow I wriggled my way into the research <laughs> centre. And uh, I've, been, a win -win all round. I've been happily yeah. ensconced at the research centre ever yeah. since. And working, you know, it's such a lovely combination of having a little bit of clinical work. So I'm still in the ICU. My children would say they're my happy days where I've yeah. got the patient contact and I'm really doing, you know, the groundwork back to grassroots, as we said a minute mm. ago. And then I have my role at the research centre where I'm now co-deputy director. I work with an amazing team. As you know, we've got fabulous project managers. We've you know, got the management team who are fantastic. We've got statisticians. We've got access to other trials groups within, mm. the, within the research, you know, within Monash University, within the Department of Epidemiology. And um, yeah, I just feel like it's really been such an amazing transition. So that was 2011, it's now 2019. And, you know, here I am, um, you know, with some funding as lead investigator mm -hmm. with international trials. And I guess, you know, Farlap, I wasn't the lead investigator for when we got the grant for Farlap. I was very junior at that period mm. of time. And uh, uh, Andrew Davies was CIA on that grant and then Alistair Nicholas CIB. So Al and I have co-chaired that, mm. uh, you know, since Andrew Davies stepped down. And, you know, so I think it was very exciting when we had worked up the program of research in early mobilisation mm. to a point where I could apply for the funding as a CIA. Yourself. yeah. And I think it's important for people to know that success didn't come quickly. Yeah. Uh, I think that, you know, that grant was put in twice before it was successful and that covered you know from two if we started that program in of research in 2011 it didn't get the big phase three funding until 2017 yeah. so you know we worked six solid years on the observational data the pilot data the systematic reviews building the evidence mm, to mm. put in a phase three grant that would be successful and the first time we put it in it was too early and it wasn't successful yeah. and the second time we really had ticked off everything that we needed to in terms of the pilot work um, and it was a really watertight grant and we received a perfect score at peer review which was amazing yeah. you know just goes to show what a fantastic team of people we had mm. working on it that everybody brought their expertise and we were able to yeah. really excel um, at, you know at an HMRC level. Yeah I think it's hugely important that isn't it recognising that you know studies don't just happen overnight they're you know to be developing a really important question to go on to look at what's happening now to then plan your study and like you say you know provide a really strong basis for what you're actually going on to research and Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I do remember, you know, the year that the grant had failed and I hadn't received a fellowship and I actually had no funding mm. and I was given a bridging 12-month um, fellowship from the university uh, and, you know, the conversation around that was, well, you've got one more year. You know, <laughs> you've got one more year. And I did spend a year wondering if I was going to have a research career. I actually yeah. thought that I probably would not and I, you know, would need to reconsider my options and, you mm. know, I'd be back doing more hours of clinical work and doing research part-time mm. at a lesser level. And I remember that at that period being incredibly sad and stressed and sometimes that makes you not think straight. And Jamie sat down with me, my, my boss, Professor Jamie Cooper, and he said to me, Carol, just focus on doing good work. Just do good work. Nothing else. Good just, advice. It's really good advice because at that point when you're sort of going around in circles trying to work out what else you have to do, sometimes you lose sight of the big picture. Um, and if you just chunk it down in mm. you know, bite-sized pieces and just make sure that you're doing everything to the best of your ability um, and really focusing on, you know, what 
that good work would look like. Lots of feedback. I mm-hmm. surrounded myself. I think that was a period of time when Ronaldo Belomo said to me, you need some really strong people around you. And he set me up with some mentors, Jack Washina, Belinda Gabe. I had some fantastic strength mm-hmm. of national and international research. And he, you know, people knew that I needed a little bit of support in that time. So I think that that's something that I will really uh, pay forward when I have an opportunity mm-hmm. is to make sure that when I have um, a team of junior researchers that in, and that's starting to build now and you know I really hope that what I can do is help put some strong international collaborators mm-hmm. around them so that you know they have some strength in the applications. Mm. Well, I mean we're very very lucky aren't we in terms of the, the group that we do our research with there are some amazing mentors um, and people who go above and beyond to help support you and like you say it's recognizing that next generation and helping them through the process as well. Absolutely and I think we I think sometimes I forget that we have such giants in research in Mm. our group Uh, and you know they are incredibly generous with their time and Mm. their support of us Uh, so I do feel like I'm at a point now where I can pick up the phone and probably talk to anybody in the trials group and that they would be prepared to give me a hand and I think uh, Mm. I think one of the things that's worth mentioning is the Excel uh, partnership grant that has recently been funded by the NHMRC so I've led an ECMO registry grant Mm. Um, and the idea of the ECMO registry was to embed trials within the registry so it wasn't just meant to be a quality registry it was meant to be a registry that could be used with daily data adverse events but also costings and um, use of equipment and other information so that we could really build some strong trials within it Mm. and when I was planning that uh, partnership grant I spoke to all of the lead investigators at the ECMO centres across Australia and every single one of them was prepared to put some of the department funding into the Excel partnership grant to leverage my funding with the NHMRC. Mm. And I just think that, again, that's, that shows the commitment and the support mm. that they're, if they feel that you're doing something that's going to be really helpful and that is good research, yeah. they're prepared to back it, not just with time and effort, but, you know, in that instance, they were actually prepared to put funding into it as mm. well. Yeah, no, mm. it's amazing achievement getting that and getting everyone on board. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about ECMO. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of centres in Australia that do ECMO now um, we have one in New Zealand <laughs> our own um, so where did your interest in ECMO come from? So I've worked at the Alfred for 23 years now we're the major ECMO centre for Victoria we do um, the ECMO retrieval and not just for Victoria we retrieve from Tasmania and parts of South Australia you know parts of New South Wales as well as well as sometimes overseas uh, so I have I can exactly pinpoint the point in time where I became particularly interested in ECMO and it was a young girl and she's actually now a friend of mine and somebody who stands up on stage and talks when I talk about Excel and ECMO. Her name's Shanna and, you know, Shanna had been on ECMO for nearly 28 days and she was um, wasted away in the bed. She had been a 17-year-old fit, healthy, year 12 student finishing final year at school and she'd been a lifesaver and a netballer and, you know, beautiful with long blonde hair. And there she was with her head shaved and all of the weight had fallen off her and she, her muscles had wasted and she'd been on a ventilator but on ECMO for 28 days. And I stood with a friend and a colleague, Kate Hayes, who's another physio, and we just shook our heads and we said, how is she ever going to recover? 
how is she ever going to recover this beautiful girl who came who was you know amazingly fit and active Mm. we just if you know we just looked at each other and thought you know she's never going to get back to any sort of normal Mm. life and from that point on Kate and I planned a study where we looked at the long-term outcomes following ECMO Mm -hmm. that was our first paper published in I can't remember now about 2012 or 13 um, looking at quality of life following ECMO and since then, we've been measuring physical function and we've measured it in different patient groups. So heart transplant, lung transplant, ARDS. Um, we've looked at muscle um, muscle mass and changes in muscle mm-hmm. mass. And Kate's done her PhD in this field, which oh. is great. Um, and I've built um, a couple of other PhD students. So Ralph Tram, who had a nursing background, who did lots of qualitative work. So asking survivors what was important to them and then asking family members of survivors what was important in terms of the recovery period and you know what things would they have liked done differently during the hospital stay and after. So that's where it started. And then I got introduced to the International ECMO Network. Yep. Um, that's led by Dan Brody in New York and Art Sartsky in Canada. And uh, they are the chairs of the International ECMO Network, but it's a fantastic organisation which aims to just improve research around ECMO to really try and improve patient outcomes mm. and to you know, improve the clinical use and application of it so that it's as safe and as effective as possible. And they asked me onto the scientific committee and onto the executive committee, which was fantastic. Mm. Um, at that point in time, there was only two females on the committee, and um, since then they've invited more people onto the onto the whole ECMO network scientific committee, which is great, um, including you know Professor Cathy Rowan mm. and um, Marianne. Uh, Campbell from mm. Scotland so we've got some real really strong methodologists in the group yeah. as well uh, so now uh, with their support we started talking about being able to run a registry that could support clinical trials internationally and Eddie Fan from Toronto and I have worked for five years with this idea in our mind that we wanted to align data points and have a, a research-grade registry mm. that could embed trials and, and that our group would be able to use within our centres but at other centres as well mm. to really support what's being done and to really be able to analyse it. So there's a few things that you need to do. A lot of background work needs to go into that. You need systematic reviews of what's currently being done, how patients are selected, what equipment's being used, what outcome measures are being yeah. reported, <laughs> what complications are occurring, You know, what are the long-term outcomes and how people assessing that so so Aidan Burrell from the Alfred has led the systematic reviews Mm -hmm. and then we needed a core outcome set for ECMO so that you know there's an outcome set that's reported in all ECMO studies so I've led that with the support of Dan and Eddie and Aidan and um, a research assistant in Melbourne called um, Dan Engler and then we went for the partnership funding and we actually with the support of the International ECMO Network we got funding in Australia and New Zealand so as it is, we've actually led the internet, the mm. start of the international registry. So we've built the REDCap registry. Yeah. We've in, started to enrol patients. We've got per patient payments for Australia and New Zealand for three years at least. Mm. Um, but Eddie is now building the international registry in Toronto, which will be leveraged off exactly the same REDCap mm. platform and using the same database, so that our, our you know our outcome measures are exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully that means that he'll be able to run you know the same data through the US and Canada Mm. and then we'll start to build European sites when we've got our data issues sorted and our governance in place. Mm. It's very exciting to be able to compare what we're doing around the place. It's really exciting and I think it's important because the use of ECMO has just you know increased 
dramatically mm-hmm. over the past five mm-hmm. years. There's more and more ECMO centres. There's more people interested in doing it. Mm. There is more uh, indications being found for the mm. use of ECMO. So particularly in VA ECMO, the cardiac conditions that are now currently being you know used is growing exponentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think you know the the availability of equipment is different. You know the the, the lines, the insertion techniques, mm. you know, the pumps, everything is, you know, it's a rapidly expanding yeah. field. And I think the only way to keep up with it is real-time data through a registry. Because mm. we really don't know what it does yet, do we? No, we don't. <laughs> we don't. And it's very hard because the centres who do ECMO honestly believe that most patients wouldn't survive without it. So mm. it's difficult to run a trial of ECMO versus no ECMO. Okay. Um, after Eolia, most people believe that there won't be another VV trial mm. of ECMO versus non-ECMO, certainly in ARDS. Um, the question is whether we could ever do it, you know, in VA. Um, the problem with crossover where, you know, if you're an ECMO centre and somebody's dying, you're not going to hold yeah. it back. Yeah. So it's very, very difficult, yeah. I think, to, to run a randomised controlled trial anyway. So mm. we need to look at, we need to look at um, trials embedded within a registry, novel trial design, and then really trying to keep our equipoise so that yeah. we can determine exactly, you know, what effect ECMO is having on our patients. Mm. Yeah. So one of the things you talked about too was, um, you know, looking at the longer-term outcomes for ECMO patients. Often we have no idea. They come to our centre for, you know, sometimes quite a long period of time, but they might go back to another centre before they go home or to a rehabilitation centre, um, and we have no idea what goes on long-term for them or their families. So what is important to ECMO survivors? Yeah, it's interesting. ECMO survivors, are, they're a very grateful group of people. They understand that their life has usually been salvaged with a very expensive and invasive mm. piece of equipment. And they understand that there's huge staff costs that come along with mm-hmm. that. So it's interesting. Most of the survivors are very happy to talk to us um, when they're, you know, when they're back home. They want to just get back to work, and they want to make the most of whatever they've, you know, got time they've got left. You know, some of them are very healthy and well, and they mm-hmm. are back at work. Some of them are very debilitated and unable to go back to work. You know, some of the conversations we have can be very sad around, particularly the young. Um, breadwinners who Mm. are trying to support a family and are unable to work and you know it puts their families into financial distress and they feel socially isolated you know the role that they had in their family is completely altered so their social you know their social standing feels completely different I think essentially they want what to be honest I don't think they're different to any other ICU survivor they want to return home get back to work and be functioning the way they were before Um, some of them don't function and then it's interesting the ones who aren't functioning well but report a good quality of life they they, you know their perception of their life is that they're lucky to be alive and they're resilient and they've you know got got good social supports and they're getting on with it Mm. and then there's a whole another group and I do think it's got a lot to do with social support who who don't function as well and they aren't as resilient and they don't feel like they've got a great quality of life but to be honest you know we haven't done enough follow-up yet to really know which way that plays out Mm. Uh, so we're just trying to you know tease that out now and I think one of the most exciting things about our registry is that we've built in patient reported outcome measures 
So not only will we have six-month outcomes, we'll have 12-month outcomes. So we'll be able mm. to talk about the trajectory of recovery yeah. and looking at, um, you know, exactly how many people are getting back to work. And, you know, if there's a consistent, you know, for example, if there's the use of one type of catheter that causes, you know, neural damage or vascular damage mm. in the leg and, and that means that people are potentially very disabled and un- unable to get back to certain activities, I'm hoping that there are sort of inferences that we'll be able to, mm. um, you know evaluate yeah. within the registry using that sort of data. Yeah, that's very cool to be able to do that. Yeah. And what about relatives? You know, they're often the sort of forgotten victims in all of this, aren't they? They sit at the bedside and watch everything that's going on. Has there been much work done in terms of what happens to them? Yeah. So I think that there's a real focus now on the fact that, you know, it's not just um, patients who are affected, but certainly, you know, families are very affected. And, you know, it's not necessarily even just the primary carer. Mm. You know, it's the children and everybody else that can be under significant stress as well. So I think there's not a lot of work in this area. There are are certainly some studies. Again, I don't know that they're going to be very different to ICU survivors Mm. per se. I think that we could pretty much say this is a, you know... Again, it's invasive, it's life-threatening, it's probably a very acute episode when somebody ends up on ECMO. Um, the families probably have you know, degrees of post-traumatic stress and anxiety that it goes with that. Um, Ralph Tram, the, um, my PhD student, who is actually now working for Safer Care Victoria, has probably done the best paper looking mm. at families and, and you know, how, how they perceived the whole experience. And one of the things that the families report is the stress of the number of roles that they play when their family are on ECMO, that they feel that, you know, they're there to care, for, you know, they need to be there to be the, the carer, the loved one who's sitting at the bedside, but they're also trying to take on board the communication and, and process everything that's happened and make sure that they're recording it accurately so that they can report it back, you know, if, if their loved one survives and report it back to other family members who are asking, but they also feel that they have to be a decision maker Mm. and they also feel that they have, you know, financial and care responsibilities back for everyone else who's been dropped while, you know, their their next of kin is sick in Mm. ICU. You know, they often have children and, you know, there's people having to be called in to manage children while they're sitting by the bedside. So they're they're actually, you know, that carousel of roles is a very stressful period Mm. for them and I think that that probably takes quite a bit of getting over. And in terms of survivors, because we know that, you know, not everyone survives ECMOs, but those who do recover, go on, go home, um, do you follow them up routinely at the Alfred and sort of see how they're doing? Or? No, we don't. We Sorry, we have followed them up within individual studies. So for the last um, two years, we've been running the PREDICT study at the Alfred, which has included Alfred patients. So our ECMO patients um, during that period will have been followed up within PREDICT. Uh, previously, we we did our quality of life studies. So for a distinct period of time, we covered up, you know, VV ECMO survivors. But we certainly haven't had any regular follow-up. Sometimes the patients are followed up because they're a, part of the heart failure clinic or mm. if they're a transplant patient, they get followed up by the transplant team. But there's been no consistent reporting of the mm. use of ECMO and the outcomes as a result of ECMO. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's what's really important. I think that what we're going to see is some very specific, you know, so um, within the core outcome set uh, are two adverse events, mm. intracranial hemorrhage and uh, major bleeding. But I think it'll be important for us to also report things like foot drop, mm. nerve damage, mm. seromas, you know, those sorts of things yeah. which get 
often reported by the survivors as well and just to yeah. have a look at what impact that has on their disability and their quality of life. Mm, mm. Yeah. I think having that longer term picture is so important, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and really, I mean, that's what matters to patients, isn't it? It's, mm. You know, they don't care about just getting out of ICU. They care about getting out of hospital, getting exactly. back home and getting back to, you know, their previous function. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned Shana. Um, and the engagement that she's got now and some of the projects. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? And Absolutely. The benefits? Uh, yeah, so, <laughs> so this really um, speaks to the importance of consumer and community involvement in research. So uh, consumer and community involvement is a bit of a buzzword now and certainly at Monash University it's considered very important. It's in, considered important by the NHMRC. I think what the, the important message about it is that you want consumers, patients, survivors, relatives to inform your research so that what we're doing is important to the people that we are serving. Mm. So I think that we've done a great job with our ECMO research program because we have picked a group of survivors, we've done qualitative research, mm. we have brought Shanna in and we have used her, we've used consumers within our core outcome set so mm -hmm. that they've actually informed what they think should be reported for every ECMO research project. Um, there was a whole specific group of consumers that answered the questions for us. We have had consumers advise us on how we've written our protocol. Shanna is on our management committee, mm -hmm. so she comes to every one of our meetings mm -hmm. and she gives the consumer voice to the research that we're planning. Um, she helps us make decisions about what trials should be embedded within the registry and what she thinks would be acceptable from a patient's perspective. Mm. And then she stands up and she helps us translate our research so that we, you know, she, as I'm talking about what we're finding, readmission rates or long-term disability, uh, she will stand up and give a patient's perspective mm. for how that's actually affected her life with photos, with, you know, real-time, you know, information about how you know the next 10 years have gone for her in terms of having to slowly recover from mm. a critical illness that really did affect her life for at least two years in terms of recovery and even now she has recurrent bronchiectasis and you know she needs to do secretion clearance every day mm. uh, so you know there's there's certainly you know she's extremely resilient very well supported very motivated yeah. you know she's all there tick boxes for you know a great quality of survival which mm. is exactly what's happened for her but she's also prepared to stand up and say how difficult it was within mm. that first year you know she had friends who had finished VCE and moved on from school she was back in the year underneath her yeah. part of that was her boyfriend who's now her husband who had <laughs> moved on as well um, she had to be back at school studying she couldn't that she was way too weak to play any sport and sport had been a huge part of her life and a huge part of her stress levels and her stress management mm. um, so you know there were many challenges she was depressed she was anxious she was tired um, you know she was weak mm. uh, she was doing lots of physiotherapy to try and overcome the physical symptoms and um, and on top of that trying to complete year 12 and, and yeah. you know move on to uni with her friends yeah it's you know it's interesting that someone who is resilient and an achiever you know can struggle so much and you wonder what happens to people that don't have those um, you know levels of support or um, you know didn't start out from the same platform in the beginning. That's absolutely right. And Shannon will say, uh, you know, I'm really not speaking out of turn because she said this to me many times. Her mum, she's an only child. Her mum sat at her bedside non-stop while mm. she was in hospital. But her dad came down from Sydney. They were separated. He came down from Sydney to support 
her mum mm. and then went back to work to support all of them yeah. while Shanna's mum didn't work to be with Shanna. So that support network has to work in at multiple mm. levels. It's mm. no one person. It's a team of people yeah, who exactly. need to support somebody who's critically ill. Mm. No, it's really tough. Yeah. Really tough on the families and that ongoing commitment. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's getting rather noisy here. Yeah. <laughs> the conference is so filling. We'll see what happens. Um, but you also talked about still maintaining your clinical component. And you do one day a week um, as a physiotherapist in the ICU. So how important is that to your research and yeah. your general well-being? So it's incredibly important to my general well-being. So I love being with patients. It's what I'm passionate about. You know, I really do believe that I'm a good physio and that I'm still enthusiastic. And when I come into the ICU, I feel a, a level of energy about my work, which is, you know, really tangible. And I am very passionate about mentoring younger staff and helping them to learn. You know, ICUs are very, particularly at the Alfred, it's a very stressful environment. You know, I think mm. the acuity of illness that we manage in ICU now, particularly with ECMO patients, is very high. Um, and I love that I have been given the opportunity to just work a very small amount of time clinically, but that I can, you know, have my time with patients, that I can do the work that I love and that I can mentor some of the junior staff and, and do some teaching. We actually still run some courses, which is fantastic. Uh, and I, I do find it hard to juggle the two, yeah. but I don't ever want to let it go. I really still identify as a physio and I do feel like that is my mm. grassroots. Um, I love our physio team, but I, I love the intensive care team as well. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's, it's nice. And I do feel like everything I do as a clinician informs my research. Mm. And I just don't know how I would keep it real and how I would keep it relevant without my clinical work. Yeah, yeah. So juggling multiple roles, <laughs> you know, within the Anzac RC and within the hospital and with families. So you've got four kids, mm -hmm. <laughs> all still at home. All still at home, but my big girls are very independent now. They're at <laughs> uni and driving and, you know, so it's easier than it was five years ago. Yeah, it yeah. gets a little bit easier, doesn't it? It does. How do you find time for yourself and what do you do? I get up early. <laughs> I get up early. If I want time to myself, I get up early. And I, uh, we're, I'm very lucky we've just uh, moved back very close to the beach. I've got two great dogs who love a nice. run in the morning. And, you know, my, my time is usually very early on the beach with the dogs. And, you know, that makes me incredibly happy. I have a very supportive husband who has never criticised my travel or my long hours at night or you know when I've said I want to do something I want to do a PhD or I want to go somewhere something's important he he never never questions it mm. he just backs me and you know I think that makes my job really easy mm. you know this week here I am in beautiful Tuscany in Prato with a fantastic group of people and I feel like I'm doing good work but I have left Mike at home with four kids during yeah. exam period and you know he juggles all of that and and you know just says to me you know go and enjoy have a great mm. time mm. you know I think you know how lucky is that yeah and we were talking about this just before we started the interview actually weren't we in terms of how at different stages of your career of your life you um, sort of reassess what your responsibilities are and your priorities and kind of juggle things around again so I, I, I often say that travel is the best and the worst part of my job because I actually love being at home and being a mum is by far my most important role. Um, I really miss my children and I do have a degree of anxiety every time I leave them. Uh, I, don't, I think that that's 
you know, that's really unknown by most people. Like our, our work looks mm. so um, fabulous because we're traveling the world, but actually that comes at a real cost at a personal level. Yeah. And I would not want to give up the travel, but at the same time, I would like more time at home. And, mm. you know, my children don't remember a time when I didn't travel yeah. and when I didn't have periods of time, you know, weeks at a time away. Mm. And that's hard as a mum, you know, I'm not always their go-to person. Um, but anyway, it has taught them to be incredibly resilient. And I hope for my three girls, a good role model, because mm. I think that, you know, what I've taught them is that you can have a career and a family and that you can... You know, you can't always have it all at the same time. It's not perfect. You know, it is a juggle, but, you know, they're, they're also really supportive and incredibly proud. So, mm. you know, again, that makes my life a bit easier. Yeah, and I think having that role modelling going on is hugely, hugely important for, for children. You know, seeing mum studying, working, doing whatever and sort of making it all work yeah. <laughs> at the same time is great. I think that's true. As long as you remember to make time for them and make it a bit of fun when you're around, I think that's yeah. the key. Yeah. yeah, and not take too much work home at the end of the day. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh well, Carol, thank you for your time. I think we're probably best to go and join the meeting. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Okay. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed that. Carol is so passionate about her research, and in particular about the importance and benefits of consumer and community involvement in research. Fantastic to hear about the Excel Registry and the initiatives around ECMO research. I loved hearing Carol talk about the benefits of maintaining a clinical workload as well as the research component, juggling a career and family as we often all do, and also about the importance of role modelling and paying it forward. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you could join us. If this is your first time listening, then welcome. And if you're a returning listener, then thank you for coming back. I hope you're enjoying the experience. If you have any feedback or suggestions, I would love to hear them. What did you enjoy? Who would you like to hear from? Would you like to make a guest appearance? Please contact me by email. Until next time, I hope this proves to be critical to your success.